Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He's a man with a passion for travel and has visited over 60 different countries to date. We talk to Glenn Carberry, who's sharing what he's seen and where at his new website, thetravelingamerican.com. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's a $6 billion worldwide industry. We're talking travel and tourism. For some, travel can be the other side of the state or visiting friends and family elsewhere in the nation. For others, it's seeing and experiencing new places in far-off countries across the globe. Retired lawyer and Norwich local Glenn Carberry started off travelling in this country, and then when the time was right, he and his family set their sights on places further afield. I sat down with Glenn recently to talk about his travels, where his passion comes from, and why he's created a free-to-use website resource for any traveller, whatever their travel budget. Glenn, ever so many thanks for inviting us into your home and your office here, which we just have to let the listeners, as obviously they haven't got the privilege of being here, is just decorated with photographs of your travels. And we've got bookcases here with places from all over the world and the history. I mean, it is, it's like a little library of travel here. We're going to get into obviously the website and, and your travels, but just explain to us, where did that passion come from? from because it's a cute little story about how this all started for you. I think so because uh, when I was young we didn't travel much as a family but I always remembered going down to my grandmother's house and grandfather's house here in Norwich and they had a little porch that seemed to be full of all these magazines, National Geographic. Sometimes when things would get boring at a family gathering I would sneak off there and start reading about these dramatic places around the world that I maybe had heard of or hadn't heard of and interesting sites and ruins and of course the geographic pictures that that magazine has have always been quite stunning. So I began to think then when I was young, boy, wouldn't it be great to see some of these places someday? And so that always kind of stuck with me in the back of my mind. For a while, it wasn't really practical. I had a a busy career and a young family. So, you know, maybe we went to Mexico or we went to Disney or went to places there. But then when I was in my 40s, my wife and I and our son, we, we decided to take a trip to Europe on a cruise. And that started us on a series of adventures that have uh, led to where we are now, which is that I've been able to visit about 60 countries and uh, travel extensive parts of the world and and now be able to write about it in my retirement. So kind of come full circle that these dreams have been made a reality to a certain extent. Has travel got easier or harder? Because 60 countries, that's no small feat at all. You know, in, in your view as a seasoned traveler, Is it easier or harder these days to travel? I think it's easier in one sense in that with the wealth of information that's publicly available now, 
Uh, years ago, if you wanted to go even to Europe, you went to your local travel agent and asked them, well, this is what I'd like to see. I wanted to see Switzerland. I wanted to see England. And they would help you put together and pick the hotel, pick the, the uh, tour, pick the uh, airfare for you. Now people can do it themselves, which is both, I think, a great help, but it's also a hindrance because there's so much information that the process of sifting through it, I think, can be challenging for people. And so that was one of the motivations that led me to start writing and sharing my experiences, just to provide some basic good information about places and people and guides and methods of travel that hopefully will be a resource for people. Talk to us a little bit about your writing, because you were saying just before we started doing the interview that, you know, if you come across maybe a hotel or something that's a little bit mediocre, you just don't bother mentioning it, which is actually an interesting way of doing your writing, because people were probably who are listening to this thinking, oh, well, 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 why is that? So why do you take that particular line with your writing, do you think? Well, I think the main goal is to provide information, as I said, and useful information. So I'm pointing people towards, here's a certain city, here's a certain country and places you might want to see there. I have a section on hotels and cruises, cruise lines, which allows some people to get some background information about the differences and what they would expect. And uh, they can sort through and find things that are useful. I think that there's a lot of pressure in the travel industry now for people to deliver results, to do bookings, to get commissions, to earn referral fees. And I didn't want to go in that direction and was in a position, particularly in my retirement, to concentrate on just providing the information for people. I started out uh, with the local newspaper The Day writing a series about an around-the-world trip I took that went to a number of different destinations. And uh, they were nice enough to allow me to do that series with them, and I got a good response. And so then I thought about doing a, a book or what turned into a four-color magazine. That was the second step. And then after that magazine was circulated to local schools and libraries and friends and, and family, I think we did a couple thousand of those uh, magazines, then talked with my uh, graphics design person. She said, well, why don't we do a website? Because you can broaden it and update it. That's what led to the final stage where we are now with the website, The Traveling American. Talk to us a little bit about the, the world cruise, you know, around the world, because that is a phenomenal thing. Not many people get to do it. And it's one of those dream things that people say, if I win the lottery, I'll go on a world cruise. Talk to us a little bit about it. Well, it wasn't a cruise. It was actually a planned trip that we made. We were going to Southeast Asia to see Cambodia, to see Singapore and a few places. And then we, I wanted to stop in India. So more I looked into it, I realized that by going west across the Pacific, I think we went through Hong Kong, and then we went to Singapore, and then we went to Cambodia, and then we went to India, and then we went to Dubai, and then we stopped in England. So it was around the world in terms of the geography, which does kind of get a little uh, screwy where you lose a day, a complete day and a half going one direction, you gain it back the other direction. You can actually fly and uh, end up arriving before you left which is kind of boggles the mind sometimes. It's the closest thing to time travel, yes. isn't it, really, sort of thing. <laughs> but on that trip, we saw three different continents and seven different countries, and that's the one that I originally wrote about. So it wasn't a world cruise in the classic sense that the ship goes all around for 120 days. 
I think that'd be a little much for me too. I think I'd get a little itchy after 30 days. Talk to us a little bit about some of the countries. I mean, there's there's one particular story which I, I hope you will regale us with. It's on your website and it was to do with you and your son. It's a good job you're not so like claustrophobic going <laughs> down into a pyramid. Tell us about it. Well, we had an excellent guide for the several days we spent uh, in Egypt and Cairo. They're the great pyramids that are just uh, totally uh, boggling in their own way in the Sphinx. But I wasn't even very much aware that there is a huge pyramid field in a place called Saqqara, which is south of Giza. And really, you could call it the testing lab for pyramids, because there's about 30 or 40 of them out there. Half of them are collapsed. They started out with what they call a step pyramid that goes up in steps. There's one pyramid that's called the bent pyramid, because it's actually bent. And there's a whole bunch of pyramids that have fallen down. And by knowing the guide, we were able to walk into what looked like just a mound or a pile of rubble and be allowed in to go down into the chamber with a guy with a torch, you know. And uh, we found the empty uh, treasure room that was full of the hieroglyphics on the wall and uh, a sarcophagus that had been smashed and opened into. But just seeing that, I mean, we weren't discoverers, but it was kind of like brings you more into the movie set type experiment, you know. I was going to say, it sounds very Indiana Jones. Yes, yes, a little bit. And and I, 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 someone asked me once, well, are you an explorer or are you a traveler? And I said, well, I certainly wouldn't call myself an explorer. I'm not ever out at sites where there's people with toothbrushes, you know, brushing away the ruins. But I don't mind getting to a site when it's in its early stages of being uncovered and open to the public. And I think that was another interesting experience. There's nothing like Angkor Wat in terms of its size and majesty of ruins that I think anything in the world can really compare to it. But our guide took me to another site called Beng Malia that had been opened up, and it was kind of more Indiana Jones. There were walkways among the ruins, and they were you know, rebuilding certain temples and things. And that was pretty interesting. And my guide told me, oh, I've been here often. And he said, oh, I've been here many years. Uh, of course, in the early days, we used to have to come with an, with an escort from the Khmer Rouge to tell us where the landmines were. <laughs> and he says, that's, that's what the platforms are. Please stay on platform. <laughs> so that was about as rustic as I've, I've gotten. I'm looking at the, the beautiful Epic Destinations magazine, which you sort of like alluded to earlier in the interview just a while ago. This one is in the news, sadly, for all the wrong reasons. It's Ukraine. Certainly. Tell us about Ukraine when you went there, because it is a beautiful country. Yes, we spent three or four days there as part of a, a Black Sea tour and cruise and land excursions. And I was really taken at the beauty of the country. We spent a lot of time in Odessa, which is a beautiful, very European city. It's certainly quite different than any cities I'd seen in Russia or some other parts of the Eastern Europe. And the people were very friendly, very outdoors, gardens, parks, things of that nature. But I was taken at the time we visited uh, Sevastopol and Yalta, where, of course, the Yalta Conference took place with Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill. And there was a different feel in the Crimea part of Ukraine. People weren't as friendly. They were a little more dour. So I would like to say that I sensed something going on there, but I didn't, although it was very strange because being here in Groton near the uh, submarines, we're used to the submarine fleet, the Russian submarine fleet was there in Ukraine. They still had rights to base their 
boats there in 2013 when we had our last uh, trip there. And the crews and their families were actually living on the submarines with clotheslines on top of the deck. It was just kind of strange. Like, we're in Ukraine, but there's a Russian base there. But the Russian soldiers that are there weren't happy because they weren't getting paid. They didn't have places to live with their families. It, It just seemed very odd at the time. And I'd like to say that it foreshadowed the current problems. But I didn't perceive that at the time. But certainly all of our sympathies about preserving the freedom for those people is an important issue now. Let's stay in Europe and Norway, which again is another gorgeous, gorgeous country. I've visited it once for a very short period of time and I I visited the fjords in Norway. Talk to us about your experience there because it is a stunning place. It definitely is. And we, we saw two aspects of it. Some of the cities like Bergen that are beautiful, you know, very similar to maybe Copenhagen, but just people are friendly, they're outdoors, the multicolored houses they have. We went to one of these Olympic ski jumps there. (laughs) It's very scary even to stand up there, never mind to think of going down it on skis. So there's that part of Norway, which is a very modern country. And then there's the kind of the coastal part of Norway where you have the, the beautiful fjords that we went on on ships and glaciers and things of that nature. Geringer, is a beautiful and popular place to see there. Really enjoyed that. I gather that those are places can be actually very dangerous, though, because every now and then, they have, when they have rock slides and things, they can have huge tsunamis in those uh, fjords. They have warning sirens in there to warn people about the possibility of, of tsunamis, which I was completely unaware of. But the people are very friendly there, and they have all of their traditions, like there are these trolls everywhere, symbols of trolls, 10-foot-high trolls. <laughs> yes, a lot of like folklore and, yes. like, and, and mythology, isn't it, sort of thing, which is, which is great to see. Let's whiz you across the other side of the world, Australia. I mean, what did you like about Australia? Because it's a huge place. It is a huge place, and I think that uh, people sometimes try to do too much when they go to Australia because you don't realize it's a continent. It's almost as big as the United States. But we did a long trip to Australia and New Zealand, uh, the North Island and New Zealand, and enjoyed that very much. Australia, we kind of focused on the coastline up by Brisbane, which is a beautiful small city of about uh, 2 million people. Then we went to kind of their coast called the Gold Coast, Melbourne, Sydney, the Blue Mountains, and learned a lot about uh, how Australia was, as you learn in your history, it was made up of practically millions of people, rightly or wrongly, who were forced uh, to relocate there by the English during the 17 and 1800s and settled in, in that land. And they actually had a huge gold rush in Australia in the 1800s, similar to the one in California. And I think that shaped a lot of cities there. Melbourne was a thriving uh, uh, city, and then they had this gold rush, and like half the, half the town just took off. Everybody went into to, uh, this area called Ballarat, where they had a huge gold, gold mines, and so we saw some of that. And the people are very friendly there. My niece has married an Australian, so I've learned a lot more about uh, their culture from them. And I think... Uh, Australia is a, is definitely a country for this century. They are growing. They're a strong country. I don't get political, but they're very much dependent upon trade with China, but yet they've been willing to stand up to China on a few issues where they've had disagreements. So the Australians are very independent and uh, should never be, be counted out. 
New Zealand was also interesting. New Zealand is beautiful. Parts of it are a little like Norway or whatever with the fjords and the uh, volcanoes. And I did a, like a 20-kilometer walk over uh, three volcanoes when I was there. That was probably uh, one of the roughest experiences I've had. It was rated a moderate height, but for me, it was practically life or death. I ended up with an, an excellent Maori guide who apparently does this hike like five days a week. But it was a long uh, 13 miles for me. I just want to quickly touch, actually, with staying in the Asia-Pacific area. You just mentioned, obviously, about China when we were talking about yeah. Australia. You have visited China. Yes. As an American, how did you feel about visiting China? Because that's a country which, of course, we hear about all the time here in America on the news. I mean, obviously, relations between America and China are perhaps not what they should be. But what was your feeling when you were there? Well, my feeling was largely influenced uh, by two wonderful guides, two wonderful people that I had, uh, one who helped us out for about six or seven days around Beijing and another one near Xi'an. All the people were very nice. I was surprised at how extensive English was available to use as a method of communication. Often signs were in English and Mandarin, of course, which, which surprised me. So it was an excellent trip and it was, was an eye-opener just to the long history of that culture and their place in the world has traditionally been a huge place in the world and is now perhaps uh, people sometimes see as China's role has somehow changed. No, I think it's more that China has kind of come back in the last uh, 40 or 50 years to its traditional role in the world as being a, an important center. So they have a lot of strengths and they're entitled to a huge role in the world. And we just have to find a new balance with them and hopefully our leaders and their leaders We'll find a way of doing that. What did you think of the country overall? Because, again, we don't always know a lot about China. It is a little bit of a secretive country, but, I mean, again, very beautiful. Talk to us about, you know, maybe some of the things that you actually saw. The hike I did on the Great Wall, and we went to the tourist part of the wall where you can go up on a gondola to the top and, and uh, look around. It's all repaired, and I also did a wild part of the wall with a, with a hiking guide where we were way up in the mountains, and uh, that was spectacular to just think, how did they do this, you know? 2,000 years ago. It is a beautiful place. A lot of the modern uh, features that have been added in the cities are unbelievable what they've done in 20 years. I did ride on the high-speed train, which gives them the ability to get around the country, and, and that was very interesting. I particularly like Xi'an is an interesting place. It uh, not only was the place that was written about by Marco Polo, on the Silk Road and in his travel log uh, 800 years before me. But it also was the place where one of the first emperors uh, united China and did the Terracotta Warriors, which are right there. So that's a city that uh, I highly recommend for people. They have a wall that goes around that city that's about five miles on each of the four sides. And that wall is like a thousand years old and it's like 80 feet high that surrounds the old city. Just the amount of history in these places compared to what we have in the United States is something that's stunning. The farther you got away from the tourist spots, the more interested they were in the West. I remember we went to see some Buddhist carvings, and it was very hot that day, and the high-speed train had just kind of connected the city, so they weren't getting a lot of Westerners there. Very hot, and so I wore shorts, and at one point a woman came up to the guide, me, and she was 
kind of barking at us. And I said, uh, what's she saying? I said to my God. And Brian says, she said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Grown man not wear shorts just for little boys. <laughs> and I said, well, please apologize to grandmother. Tell her I'll, I'll do better next time. <laughs> and, you know, that's about as, as different a cultural exchange as, as we had. But other than that, people are very friendly. You learn a lot from the people. And I try to talk to them as much as I can when I'm out in the streets. That's my final point I want to put to you. For us as culture, the only way that we improve ourselves is by traveling and, and immersing ourselves in other cultures. Do you feel that your views have changed over the years because of the ability that you've had to, you know, go to various other countries and, and you know, and basically, even for short periods of time, learn a little bit more about the people? Yes, I think both of those points are true that I learn as well as hopefully I, I project some good things about America. I try to when I'm uh, abroad, but also hear and understand the differences and different perspectives that people have around the world. I think the world has grown a lot smaller because of communication and travel is another way that it, that it should be. So the United States should always try to remain open to having people come and visit us here, and we should try to uh, get overseas as much as we can. My goal with the website is to make information available to people. We have, I think, 250 articles on it now covering the five dozen countries. So hopefully that'll be a good resource that people can use. There's a lot of information there about how to plan a trip, different guides to use, cruise lines, hotels, but more often just places, both whole countries and individual destinations. A section of the website is grouped by 15 different types of interests. So that if you're interested in food, there's seven or eight articles about interesting food experiences, archaeology, history, uh, animals, culture, and entertainment. You can go by type of interest if that's the kind of travel you are and say, oh, I didn't realize that in Brazil you could do this or learn that. It's been a good experience, and hopefully I can, uh, in my young age, tender age of uh, 68, I can continue to travel for a few more years and keep riding. Well, Glenn Carberry, the Travelling American, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us about, as I say, your travels. And as you just said, we wish you continued safe travels. And watch for South Africa and Germany and a few others soon. To find out more about Glenn's travels and the places he's been to and to read his travel tips, visit his website at thetravellingamerican.com. Ma, is this how you feed a hamster? Uh, I think so. Is my homework right? Hmm, I think so. Is uh, this milk still good? Uh, I think so. When it comes to parenting, sometimes it's okay to think you know. But when it's something as important as your child's car seat, don't just think. No. Double check if your child is in the right seat for their age and size. It'll help protect them in a car crash. Don't just think. No. By visiting NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's hurricane season, and your trees can be damaged by high winds. Green Valley Tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours. We offer emergency tree service by bucket, crane, and climbing for residential, commercial, and even municipalities across eastern Connecticut. From full tree removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken, hung up, or fractured tree limbs. Call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. 
time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... For over 35 years, Eastern Connecticut Hematology and Oncology, or ECHO, has served as the leading independent cancer care provider in Eastern Connecticut. We believe cancer care belongs in your community, giving you higher quality at a lower cost, a team that treats you as a person, not a number, access to the latest clinical trials, and all the services you need in one convenient location. To learn more, visit echoassociates.org. Like other states, Connecticut is in the middle of a year-long process of redetermining people's eligibility for Medicaid. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has an update on how it's going. When the COVID-19 public health emergency ended this spring, so did the government's requirement that states keep everyone on Medicaid enrolled. Now, that is unwinding. The Kaiser Family Foundation says the pandemic brought an increase of more than 20% in Medicaid enrollees in Connecticut, a big jump, but around 11% lower than the national average. As the unwinding process continues, Peter Hadler with the state's Department of Social Services wants to clarify some misconceptions about Medicaid redetermination. Something that was potentially misunderstood and that we've been working to correct is that not everyone is losing coverage. Not everyone suddenly has to rush in at the end of this public health emergency declaration. We have been you know, with federal guidance in accordance with all of the rules of the program. This is being planned with some intentionality. He adds people should be meticulous about renewing their benefits rather than panic if they're contacted by DSS or Access Health CT. Since the redetermination process began, more than 46,000 people in Connecticut have been disenrolled from Medicaid, according to Kaiser Family Foundation data. And a little over 131,000 people have had their coverage renewed. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. In the Day newspaper this week, emergency responders were joined recently by local, state and federal leaders to celebrate the city receiving $2.2 million in federal funding to replace more than 200 police and fire department radios and several pieces of dispatch equipment. The grant, approved in December through the 2023 Consolidated Appropriations Act, will cover the cost of 156 new portable radios, 85 for police and 71 for the fire department, as well as 45 upgraded police cruiser radios and 20 more for fire vehicles. The reimbursable funding also covers the cost of communication upgrades at the primary dispatch centre inside the police department and those at three fire stations. Mayor Michael Passero from New London said the grant allows the city to tackle crucial communication system upgrades without dipping into the city's capital improvement plan budget. It's all changed at the top for the Ledgelite Health District as Director of Health Stephen Mansfield retired from his position recently as head of the agency after 25 years of service. Jennifer Maggio, another long-time staff member at the agency and previously the Assistant Director, now steps up to the top job as Director of the agency. Ledgelite Health District serves as the local health department for East Lyme, Groton, Ledgered, Lyme, New London, North Stonington, Old Lyme, Stonington and Waterford. Ledgelite Health District as a special unit of government allowing member municipalities to provide comprehensive public health services to residents in a more efficient manner by consolidating these services within one organisation. The Director of Health and staff of Ledgelite Health District work to promote health and wellness among the 151,000 residents the agency serves. 
Eastern Connecticut State University and Hartford Healthcare are joining forces to tackle Connecticut's nursing shortage by establishing a partnership aimed at increasing the number of healthcare professionals in the region. The collaboration centers around Eastern's new Bachelor of Science in Nursing degree and includes the construction of a cutting-edge simulation facility at Wyndham Hospital. The groundbreaking initiative will create a nursing pipeline specifically tailored to serve eastern Connecticut, the state's least populated area. Connecticut faces a significant nursing shortfall, with all nursing programs combined graduating fewer than 2,000 nurses each year, according to the Governor's Workforce Council. However, the state requires an estimated 3,000 nurses annually to meet post-pandemic staffing demands. The Eastern Hartford Healthcare Partnership seeks to bridge the gap by establishing a comprehensive nursing program at Eastern, benefiting the entire region. Rocco Orlando, Chief Academic Officer for Hartford Healthcare, emphasised the significance of the collaboration, saying it is a true joint venture. It is the only nursing programme we're supporting from the ground up, and Eastern Connecticut is the least populous part of the state. The nursing shortage is most profound there, he said. Easton's Bachelor of Science in Nursing program is set to commence in the fall of 2023 with ongoing admissions allowing students to apply for the upcoming semester. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms, on demand, and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow, and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>